Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free anytime you want it at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. Today's guest is a drummer who has chosen to put his political convictions right at the forefront of the music that he makes. Ted Sirota's Rebel Souls have a new album called Seize the Time, and it opens with The Clash's Clampdown. My guest is Ted Sirota. He and his band Rebel Souls have a brand new record out called Seize the Time, and uh, it's my pleasure to welcome Ted to the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jason. Uh, can you talk about, uh, you've got a, a history of using uh, music and instrumental music, in fact, um, to talk about uh, political issues or the concept of political engagement. Can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with using music that way? Um, let's see. I guess they were kind of on, uh, I was sort of on parallel paths when I was growing up, you know, just constantly listening to music, checking out music, practicing, studying, um, but at the same time, trying to be aware of uh, what was going on around me in the world. Um, so I would say that was probably in uh, when I was in high school in the mid-80s, so um you know, Reagan era and uh the uh war in Nicaragua and then the the other wars that were happening in Central America, especially at that time in El Salvador and um Guatemala and places like that as well as the uh situation with apartheid in South Africa. I was just um you know, trying to learn and study that as well, well trying to figure out what was going on in the world and who these different forces that were fighting were representing and what the United States was doing in this context and uh, eventually they just sort of kind of fused for me I guess with the help of 
some of my favorite musicians, um, people I was listening to like um, Bob Marley and Peter Tosh and The Clash, and um, I've actually been listening to a lot of punk rock in that around that time as well. Um, and also Max Roach was my favorite drummer, and I had um, you know checked out some of his records and the, the titles to some of his songs and stuff like that. So that's I guess uh, it wasn't really a premeditated plan kind of happened that way and I came to the understanding that really um, all art is political um, it's just depends on what, what you know from, from one degree to another it's all political can you say a little more about that Ted what, what do you mean when you say all art is political well I said uh, at one point um, when I was trying to describe this like uh for instance, I remember seeing like uh, I love Victor Feldman, but this uh, this comes to mind. I remember shopping for records, you know, and and just one example: if you have a uh, a jazz record, and um, there's a picture of some sexy babe in a in a uh, bikini on the cover, you know, at the beach, um, you know, that's political. That's that's you're coming from a certain standpoint you're coming from a certain ideology that normally you know we're trained not to think of that as being quote unquote political but to one degree or another it's it's upholding or uh rejecting a certain ideology so then if you compare that to say like Joe uh Joe Henderson had a record power to the people um if you listen to the song to the music and and somebody didn't tell you the title to a song like Afrocentric or something like that or a Mingus tune um you wouldn't know what it was there's no lyrics you know but um they they made a choice to at least name it something that would raise people's consciousness or get them thinking or provoke you know provoke thought yeah i just think that you know as as human beings as a society we we don't live in a vacuum so um, if you choose to not speak up or be complicit with certain things that are taking place around you, that that's a political decision. I know uh, you've already you mentioned this already that you were listening um, to, to reggae and punk, and I know that when you um, first went to Boston uh, and were studying at Berkeley, that you were playing you know, reggae and soca, and uh, it seems like a lot of those musics really uh, lend themselves uh, to carrying a political message in a in a palatable way I mean you can you know a lot of those a lot of like Bob Marley's compositions just to pick an obvious example are scathingly political and yet kind of delivered in this very musically accessible package um, is there well, you may or may not agree with that and feel free to speak up on that but also I wonder how the packaging is different of you know these kind of political ideas when you don't have those lyrics uh, to rely on does it does it rely on things you say when you're in performance the packaging of the record so on and so forth how do you how do you kind of navigate that well yeah i mean on the first part of what you said about um you know like jamaican music i I think that there's certain parts of the world uh, you know most of the world and large sections you know within the u.s as well where people don't really have the luxury to choose whether they're going to be quote unquote political or not. You know, um, it's a, it's a life and death question every day. You know, if you're in Iraq right now or Afghanistan, um, you don't really have a choice of, you know, whether you're going to decide to be that way or not. It's all around you. And, and, you know, someone like Bob Marley growing up in 
trench town in, in you know the slums of Kingston, you know that shaped everything that that he was and everything that he did. So, um, you know, and then yeah, most of the music um, like that there's lyrics, you know, so you can hear very clearly. Um, you know, it might be uh, poetic and usually is, you know, but you can hear the words. So um, I don't know. I guess just as a as a jazz musician, um, you know, I haven't chosen to use any any vocals on my records yet. But um, you know, I think that the power of the song comes from the spirit and energy that it's infused with. So um, I don't know. I just try to link those things. If I write a song for somebody in dedication to somebody, then I try to at least think about that person's. Um, I don't know. Think about that person, or you know, their spirit, or the energy that they seem to um, to release. You know, out into, out into the world, like um, you know, Ken Sarah Wee, I wrote a, a song for. Who was a Nigerian activist and poet, um, and I obviously I never met him. And you know, I read a speech that he made from from the gallows before he was hung, and that was very, very moving and uh, inspiring. And um, so I decided to write a song about him rather than write a song about some woman who dumped me. <laughs> you know. <laughs> You may not use a vocalist, but you do, in fact, use lyrics because you've chosen on this record, in addition to the original composition, to play tunes that have lyrics, um, even if you don't have someone singing them. I mean, you know, things like, you know, Clamp Down and the McCabe tunes, um, you know, Stephen Foster's Hard Times. I mean, these are these are tunes that, if people are familiar at all with the music, the source music, then there's certainly a lyrical you know, undercurrent or a, a subconscious kind of the remembering of the lyrics as you hear the music. So in, in some ways you get to employ the lyrics even without, yeah, you know, explicitly having someone vocalizing them. At least that's my, my takeaway. Yeah, well, I hope so. I mean, that's kind of the whole history of jazz in a way, you know. I mean, all the, all the standards that were 
built upon for, you know, that Charlie Parker and everybody else brought their tunes over. You know, they were all show tunes with, you know, the vast majority of them were, were pretty light um, as far as the content of the lyrics. But, you know, um, I don't think that's anything real different in terms of, I don't know, just stylistically, you know, the, the music as an instrumental music was based on songs that were sung. Uh, will you uh, will you talk about the the guys who are in this band? Which is a I know that uh, Soul Rebels you know has had a variety of people in it over the years, and this lineup uh, is really strong. Can you talk about these players? Um, the guys have been playing with me past few years now. Um, they have well, the, the guy who's been with me the longest in the band is Jeff Bradfield. I can't really remember when he started playing. I think it was around. 99 or so so maybe like 10 years and um so he plays tenor and you know jeff's one of my like like a you know long time cohort obviously and um just really enjoy playing with him i just think he's a master of his instrument and um very creative creative person and someone who's really in touch on the bandstand and and uh in touch with what's going on around him at the moment in fact, you know, everyone in the band is, and that's those are the type of people that I like to play with most. So um, Greg Ward is playing alto, and uh, Greg just recently moved to New York City, but he's been back and forth a lot to Chicago because he's he really uh, laid down his, his roots here and, um, you know, has a lot of different musical uh, entities that he's involved with here. Yeah, when I first heard Greg, I just... Um, his sound, his tone, and on the instrument just blew me away. And also his his creativity as far as his improvising and willingness to take chances in the music. Eventually, hooked him in, hooked him into it uh, when he wasn't long out of college. And uh, on guitar is Dave Miller. It's the same kind of situation. I have been playing with Jeff Parker for for years and years. We met back in um, started playing in about 1987 or 88. Um, but Jeff is, uh, he stays real busy, so it's hard to keep things going. Um, he, you know, he's in Tortoise and has a number of other gigs that he does, so he's traveling a lot. And at that time, he recommended Dave. He had heard Dave, and uh, he was the first person I had found in, I don't know, about 10 years that I felt could step in for Jeff. Um, I usually would just go without guitar or quarter instrument if Parker couldn't make it. Yeah, and Dave's really kind of grown into his own musician and then on uh, and just before you, just before you finish up Ted just let me ask what is it uh, about Jeff and what the uh, what his role in the band was that was so difficult uh, to to replace or to find someone else to to tackle I mean one thing on a personal level is just that we we knew each other so well and had been friends for so long that I mean even when we first started hanging out we had we were kind of coming from the same place musically um, and we would always talk about music, debate music, listen to music together and stuff like that. And we had our own opinions on certain things, but we had actually a band before I put together my band that was called The Last Quartet. And we just, um, you know, when you don't have to explain things uh, to other musicians too much, then I think for me, I'm in a good, it's a good situation, you know. <laughs> Um, it's just like any other relationship. When when a lot of things are understood without talking about them, um, it just makes life a lot easier, and I think it takes the music to a higher level. So with Jeff, 
I didn't have to, um, most of the time I didn't have to say, hey, man, can you do it like this instead? Or, you know, no, 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 that's not what I'm trying to do. You know, he would usually get what I was that I wanted and then take it to the next level. And I'd be like, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> you know, um, and then just anyone who's heard him or knows him, I mean, he's since I first heard him um, back in Boston, you know, he already had his own voice and his own approach to, I won't say his own, but a very, I don't think any of us have our, completely have our own, you know, thing. It all comes from somewhere, but very personal um, style and sound and voice on his instruments. So he's just a hard person to, to replace, you know. He's not like your average typical guitar player. Or, I mean, there's a lot of great guitar players that, that I'd like to play with, but not necessarily have in my band. I don't know if that makes any sense, but... Yeah, no, um, it, it definitely does. And I yeah. stopped you from uh, talking about Jake, so... Jake, Greg, and Dave, I all met and heard when they were just either in school or just getting out of school. I think they were all in college still, so I was trying to grab them, grab them young, you know, and uh, Jake... I didn't get him right away in the band. I had some other bass players, but um, we have been playing a lot, and I just think he's he's a phenomenal musician. Um, he's an incredible bass player and just has a great feel and plays great great lines. And he's a he's a thinker too, you know. And he can he's one of these guys that can play like every instrument. He's just a super talented musician. He he can do everything. So. Um, you know, I was really happy to get these guys eventually, get this group of people together. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, hearing uh, Max Roach early on and being familiar with his music and, and the political side of his music. And at least to my way of thinking, there was uh, around that same period, I mean, there were, you know, Mingus and slightly later Charlie Hayden with the Liberation Music Orchestra and just a lot of people making a lot of overt statements with the music that they made. And um, I don't know if that, maybe it never went away and I just became less aware of it, but it. Uh, it seems to me like there's been somewhat of a resurgence of people feeling uh, either compelled to or comfortable with 
uh, using uh, improvised music to start talking about other things than just the music. Do you feel like it's kind of gone through uh, cycles, or has it always been there and maybe I just didn't hear it for a while? I, I don't think that historically, you know, at least in the in the 20th century, for sure, that there, there was a, a period similar to the 1960s, you know, I think it was, uh, and that on the worldwide scale, you know, so if you just look at the year 1968 and all the upheaval and um, you know, revolutions and rebellions and everything that was going on in the world. It was, uh, I think, revolution that was on the minds of millions of people, if not billions. So, um, and if you, you know, you can look at what was going on in other areas in the arts and other styles of music. And I just think, you know, a lot of musicians were mixed into that, you know, those scenes at that time. Um, you know, even Miles was, you know, looking to Jimi Hendrix and Sly Stone and people like that. And James Brown, who wasn't necessarily the most uh, progressive thinker of our time, you know, but he was still writing music like Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. I think there was something in the air, more, more so than there was something in the air. There was something happening, you know. That works its way into what I like to call, and some other people like to call as well, the superstructure or the culture and the society. And I think at some point, uh, the uh, the culture leads can lead the people, you know, in the trenches, so to speak. Um, it can be forward thinking and revolutionary in a way, and the people catch up to that. And then other points, I think the people are jump ahead of what's happening culturally in the culture. Uh, the artists sort of um, catch up with what's happening with the people, you know. But I think they reflect one another to a certain degree. I think that a lot of that died out, you know, with with the movement in in the '70s into the '80s. But I, I think it popped up in other in other styles of music. I know when I was a teenager, that's why I was m- more attracted to punk rock. Um, not than other styles of music, but I don't think just musically I would have been too attracted to it. But I was uh, attracted to the fanzines and the do-it-yourself and the uh, the rebellious nature and that people like Jello Biafra were talking about, you know, what was happening in Central America and what was happening in um, other parts of the world, you know. So um, I didn't find much of it in, in jazz personally. So let me ask you a question. Uh, actually, you were talking about um, you know the the kind of ebb and flow of politics and music. And earlier, you mentioned that uh, you know making intentional choices about song titles is one way for people who are playing instrumental music uh, to at least try to have some kind of message incorporated with that. And you also you know had to make an intentional choice about the album title, which is called "Seize the Time." And so I wanted to ask you about that that choice of title for this record. Yeah, you know, I just. Uh... It took me a while to kind of think of a title to package it with, um, but 
to me, it was kind of an inside joke with myself <laughs> because, um, well, there was a there was a book called Seize the Time by Bobby Seale, and um, that was a really great book about the Black Panther Party and, uh, you know, sort of a, a biography or autobiography. And also, just trying to keep up with that theme, I mean, like what you said in the last question, that's why I named my last record Breeding Resistance, because... Uh, there's a saying that oppression breeds resistance. So the more that the oppression comes down on the people, the reaction of that is there's going to be more resistance to that. Um, and I think that's why at certain points you see, um, you know, the kind of flourishing that you're talking about in the music and the arts. Well, that started happening again, uh, especially, I think, I mean, it never went away, but in a different way after 9-11, you know, with the Bush administration. Um, and I think it has, quote-unquote, politicized a lot of people who maybe weren't paying it so much attention to it before then. At least I've seen it with a lot of musicians and, and peers. To me, with all the Obama coming to uh, the forefront here and this sort of euphoria amongst people that, you know, oh, now we're in a, we're in a post-racial era and racism doesn't exist anymore and you know, he's going to wave his magic wand and everything's going to be great. Um, I just never felt that way. I, I really didn't have any illusions about what was going to happen if Barack Obama was elected president. So to me, it's important to keep, to not let down your guard. And instead of waiting and seeing, well, what's going to happen, you know, well, you know, every day is a life and death situation for the majority of people around the globe. So to me, you know, that's where that title comes from, Seize the Time. You know, instead of um, being apathetic or, you know, just inactive, that now's the time, you know, to, to, uh, to quote another famous composition. But then also <laughs> just as a drummer, you know, I was just thinking of time. Like, that was sort of the inside joke for myself. It is interesting, um in this in the Obama era now uh, I, I feel very similar to the the way you feel and have always been worried it's it's it was difficult not to be happy that the Bush administration was gone but um it was also difficult not to be worried that everybody who had mobilized during that time would then say oh it's over we win and just go away recede into the woodwork and so i think it's it's incredibly important that you know artists and other people in this case, artists keep making artistic statements that remind people <laughs> that we haven't won uh -huh. uh, and that there's a lot of work left to do. I think that's a valuable use of the arts. I, just finally, I wanted to ask you uh, whether you think that your decision to uh, be an overtly political musician has had any impact on your career in any direction. I kind of wish there were some other people, some, maybe some more people doing it. <laughs> you know, um, in a way, I sort of feel like uh, you get pigeonholed because there's not that many people doing it. And, you know, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm so over the top with it. It's just, you know, I'm expressing a certain angle. And I think since it's not the norm, um, it, get, it gets pointed out a lot. Like when Dave uh, Douglas put out that record, Strange Liberation, that to me was like, that was cool, you know. <laughs> Um, and I don't think everybody has to do that, but I thought that was that was a thought-provoking title, you know, and it had to do with this quote-unquote liberation of 
of Iraq, you know. Um, it didn't really... And then Ben Allison, I know, named one of his records, I think the record, Man Size Safe, you know, um, for Dick Cheney's safe. <laughs> and if there was more of that, even in a ton tongue-in-cheek kind of way, I don't think I would get pigeonholed so much as... And I don't mind talking about it, uh, and I don't mind being... Um, you know, known for that. I, I'm the one who put it out there. But I think it gives people an excuse to, um, well, I won't say people. It gives a lot of critics an excuse to sort of overlook the music and just focus on that angle. And, I mean, I know for a fact I read some of the reviews that came out for this record, um, especially in, in England, and it just, you can, as a musician, you can read somebody. Like, talking to you, I can tell that, you checked out the music, you know, you did research, but people write reviews and they didn't never listen to the record. It's obvious, you know, and if they did, they didn't get it at all. So, um, I mean, like one of the things I decided after this one is that I'm not writing any more liner notes because I find that writers will just essentially take chunks of my liner notes out and, and use that for 90% of their review of the record. And I know that they didn't listen to it, you know, so that's kind of disappointing. I'd like to be able to, I'd like to have my cake and eat it too. You know, I'd like to be able to express thoughts about the world and relate that to my music and have people still listen to the music. You know, that's the main thing for me. If people say, I don't get, I don't care about Mumia Abu Jamal, you know, I, I don't really, it's not of interest to me, but listen to this melody or, you know, this is really moving song or whatever. Or even if they're critical of it, that's fine. I just don't like being um, typecast, you know. No, that's that's so. a very fair criticism, and in, in fact, it's a it's a criticism fair enough to make me realize that out of twenty eight minutes that we've talked, I think we've spent almost no time actually talking about the musical content of the record. I mean, to <laughs> some to some degree, I think that's the danger of as as you say the kind of the package that you've wrapped it in it is and it's to when you're talking to me in particular this particular individual human being i'm so down with the political side of everything that you're doing and it's so rare to get to talk to anybody about this that in many mm -hmm. ways i would rather talk to you about using music this way i talked to a thousand people about you know the particular instrumental and harmonic choices that they make on their records and that's great but mm -hmm. actually there are so few people doing anything like you're doing, or at least so few that I've discovered, uh, that I don't spend very much time at all talking about talking about the the context, the cultural context in which this music occurs, and that to me is in incredibly important. But this uh, this record also kicks ass. I mean, to use a technical <laughs> term, I had the re you know I've had this record on in my house a lot. My kids love this record. My wife likes this record. Um, I don't think I mentioned till tonight. That oh yeah this is you know who this guy is and this is a you know it's a lot of really political stuff you know kind of surrounding this record too but you can't tell I mean the record is fantastic the players are awesome um, the arrangements are really really smart I understand the reasons that that's important to you uh, and it ought to be and it ought to be important to me too and it is but I have to say honestly and this is a very long speech I'm making I have to say honestly <laughs> that I think it's almost at this now it's all it's it's not as important I don't think that another really brilliant piece of music necessarily be talked about as it is that someone who's decided to take a fairly daring kind of contextual leap get recognized for doing that and that hopefully that will free up more people to feel, you know, 
so that you're not the only guy or one of the few guys, you know, kind of standing at the end of the at the gangplank. I don't know, but I yeah. could be totally wrong about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I I enjoy. It. I'll I'll talk forever about you know the relation between revolution and music and the history and how they in different countries and how they you know relate to one another and and interact and i you know like i said i'm the one who said that all well i didn't make it up but um you know who mentioned that all all art is political and i just think if that was a more widely accepted and understood concept then everybody would kind of get treated more similarly i don't know if that makes sense but it's um because certain things and not you know and and being complicit with the the status quo is considered not political then everyone who does that gets kind of a free pass <laughs> you know <laughs> but um i don't get a lot of people attacking me on it um on my stances you know it, i don't know if they care enough to or or not but i do get criticism of Again, some of the reviews I saw were like they see that we're playing in Clampdown or Clash Tune or they 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 read the titles and then before they hear it they're expecting something. They've created something in their mind in uh an expectation. And then instead of listening to the music just on the music's terms and then generating opinion, they're matching their preconceived uh idea of what it should be with then what they're hearing for the first time. Do you understand what I'm saying? I absolutely do, and I would say that in the defense of all those people, when Charles Mingus titled a tune "Free Cell Block F is Nazi USA," uh-huh. he, I mean, he made at that moment a decision that every person who ever read the song title before they listened to that tune was going to. There was it was impossible if you had any kind of cultural awareness at all, it it would be impossible to escape some kind of context and kind of append to that music something, either uh, whether you were offended by it or not, or whether you were totally kind of in, uh, you know, in harmony with with his ideas. And so I Mm -hmm. kind of feel the same way. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to have a record where if you flip the back over, you read all these, you know, these song titles in these particular bands, and I think not, not associate and it's not as if that wasn't your to some degree your intention I mean you could have called all these tunes you know flowers and bunnies or whatever um, right I mean you you did in fact intend for there to be a political context that was attached to the music I, I don't, yeah yeah I, I just feel like I'm part of the struggle you know as a human being and <clears throat> what I do is um, I'm a musician you know so I feel like I should I should comment on that or at least approach that in my art, you know. I'd probably do it more than, you know, at least musicians, like you've been saying, I might do it more than, than other people do, but um, I just see it as being a <laughs> a human, you know, as where my place is on the earth and, and where my convictions lie. And um, it just so happens that I'm a drummer, so this is how up to this point in my life, at least, this is how I've chosen to try to, throw my little pebble into the ocean so and it's nice though you know when people people uh hear it and they they get it you know and they appreciate it and um are inspired by it that that makes me want to keep going so 
Well, and and one thing that will help uh, take the curse off uh, the fact that all we've done is talk about the politics of the record, or all I have done is ask you questions about that, is that this isn't happening for you and I in this moment. But while people are listening to this, they will also have been hearing the record the entire way through. So, uh, you know, so hopefully uh, people who have now gotten this far in the interview have also heard seven or eight tracks, uh, pieces of seven or eight tracks off the record, and will realize that this record has something to offer at all, at every level. Whether you agree or disagree or are completely unaware of the politics, the record itself, just as a piece of music, is is incredible, and people should check it out. So. Cool. Well, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Well, uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and uh, I I don't know if I should apologize or not for taking all of that time talking about politics, but I'm I'm very uh, I'm very happy that you've chosen to do what you've done, you know, with the, the last several records, um, and you know, very happy to get a chance to to talk to you about it and to talk to someone who's who realizes that. There is a need to be explicit, <laughs> and uh, I appreciate the work that you're doing, and I thank you for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Jason. Call me, uh, call me tomorrow. I'll do it again. All right, brothers. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, you definitely need to come back. That's Ted Sirota and the Rebel Souls from their new album, Seize the Time. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of this program is also available for free, on demand, anytime you want it, at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. The show has an email mailing list. You can sign up for it at thejazzsession.com, or you can join the Facebook group. In either case, you'll get a message each Monday morning letting you know what's happening on the show in the coming weeks ahead and uh, also giving you some other interesting jazz links. Thanks to my friends in the Respect Sextet for providing the theme music for this program. They are performing at Le Poisson Rouge in New York City on January 12th. Uh, Opening for them will be pianist Ethan Iverson of The Bad Plus. You can find out more at respectsextet.com.
Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. And most importantly, thank you so much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.